to Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 32. We will read through to the end of the chapter. Now hear God's word. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when, they, when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come again to your word this morning, recognizing that these are not just the words of Luke as a man, that Luke was led by the Spirit to write these words, that these, in fact, are your words through him, that these are the words of the living God and that they themselves are therefore living and active and full of divine power. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to understand them And help us, Father, to not just hear them, but to become doers of your word. People who trust you more and more and follow you more and more as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, may the words of my mouth this morning, may the meditations of our hearts this morning upon your holy word be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So two weeks ago at Easter, Resurrection Sunday... We got to meditate together from Revelation chapter 5 on how worthy the risen Jesus Christ is. Worthy to open the scroll that is held in the sovereign hand of the Almighty God. Worthy to execute the sovereign will of God. To perfectly enact and carry out God's sovereign purposes for this world, for the rest of history. To bring judgment on all that is evil to ransom and redeem people from every tribe and nation from their sins, to establish the everlasting kingdom of righteousness which cannot be shaken and which will never end. How worthy the risen Lamb is of all power and wealth 
and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This morning, as we come back to our study now of the book of Acts, we come to the perfect passage to follow up all that we saw two weeks ago about the glory of the risen Jesus Christ. Because here, through the Apostle Peter, the risen Jesus Christ puts all of His glory on display by exercising His sovereign power over everything that might cause us to be fearful in this world and cause us to think, I don't know if I can trust God in this world. The risen Christ puts His sovereign glory and power on display over sickness and over death itself. Over all of the things that bring fear and dread into our lives. And when we started this series in the book of Acts a number of months ago, we titled the series, The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because even though we're used to calling this book the Acts of the Apostles, it's even more accurate to emphasize how even though the Apostles of Jesus Christ are the ones going out into the world from Jerusalem doing these magnificent things that we read about, as Jesus' witnesses, they're only doing the things that they do. They're only performing the acts that they perform through the divine power of God who is working in and through them. And I know that seems pretty obvious, but it's really important for us to always keep that obvious truth in our minds, in our focus, that it's God doing the things that happen in the book of Acts. And that it's God doing them for His purposes and that it's God doing them for the sake of His glory and not the glory of Peter or anybody else. It's easy and it always has been easy for Christians reading this book to become more focused on and more impressed with the apostles themselves and with the things that happen, with the acts themselves in the book of Acts than with the sovereign God who is doing those acts. And so people tend to read the book of Acts, and their main takeaway is the acts, is the stuff, the miracles, the signs and wonders, the healings, people being raised from the dead. And of course, everybody acknowledges that it is the power of God that makes those things possible, but but there's this very real sense in which people become so captivated by the things that God does in Acts that they miss the main point. And the main point is not for us to come away from the book of Acts wanting to do these kinds of things ourselves. The main point is that through the supernatural acts of the apostles, God was proving His sovereign authority. God was proving His divine power so that people would listen to the message of the apostles, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the main point of the book of Acts. If we come away more interested in the miracles than in the message if we come away more captivated by the supernatural acts than by the gospel that they point to, more enamored of the apostles' power to heal physical sickness than the power of God to save lost sinners and raise them to newness of everlasting life, 
then we've missed the point of the book. So today, as we come here to the end of Acts chapter 9, where the Apostle Peter performs some pretty spectacular acts, he does some pretty magnificent things by the power of God within him, the important thing for us to get from the outset is that not only does Peter never ever point to himself, not only does he glorify Christ when these miracles are performed, ultimately, what he points people to is not just Jesus' power to heal physical diseases or even raise people from physical death, but Jesus' power and authority to save sinners. Much more than the physical healings that he performs. And as we go on in the book of Acts, that's what we'll see through and through in the larger context. We see that the miracles that the apostles performed really were intended to serve a greater purpose of the apostles being able to bring the gospel further into the world, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, beyond all those Jewish territories, and into the world of the Gentiles, so that people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, could behold the power of the one true God. Not just to heal the sick, not just to raise the dead, but so that they could then hear the word of this God, the gospel, which is the power of God to save eternally all who believe, Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation. And so here we come to verse 32 of Acts chapter 9, and in the verse right before that, in verse 31, which is where we left off before Easter, it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord, remember, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. It was growing like wildfire all throughout the region. The Jewish people, you remember, who had become Christians, they turned to Christ, they become believers and followers of Jesus, now were being more and more exposed to this growing persecution by the unbelieving Jews who wanted to squelch this new movement. And so the the believers, the Christians, had scattered all around. And when they scattered, they brought the gospel, they brought the truth, they brought the word of God with them. And so churches were established all around the region of Judea and Samaria and all the way even up in Galilee. And these churches were multiplying now all throughout the whole land. And so verse 32 says that Peter was traveling around and he was ministering among the churches in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, and also up in the north in Samaria, uh, adjacent to the territory of Judea, and and then also all the way up in Galilee, all the way up at the northern end of the land of Israel. And as he's going about and ministering in all of those churches and all of those places, it says that he came to a place called Lydda. Now Lydda was... This tiny little village, kind of off the beaten path, about 40 or 45 miles up to the northwest of Jerusalem, in the region of Samaria. And when Peter came to Lydda, it says that he came across a man named Aeneas. And Aeneas was paralyzed. We don't know how, we don't know if it was a disease or an injury or what, but he's paralyzed and he's been bedridden. For eight years, he can't move, he can't walk. 
And it seems, by the way, that this little story goes, that everybody, everybody in the whole community knew Aeneas, knew who he was, and understood that he was a, a paralyzed man. Because when Peter healed him, everybody ended up hearing about it and recognizing the great work of God that had happened. Now you can imagine that being a paralytic would be a, a difficult life, a, a hard life, no matter when or where you lived, right? But being a paralytic in the ancient world, in first century Roman Empire, was especially hard, brutally hard. In that time, in that part of the world, people couldn't earn a living by doing online kinds of work, right? People could only survive by way of hard physical labor. The sweat of your brow and the, the strength of your back were the things that a man needed to be able to do the work that there was to do in order to earn himself a living. And Aeneas couldn't do any of that. He couldn't work. And so he must have had to beg for food and for money for years. And so everybody understood that this is who he was. Physical paralysis has always been this terrible, awful, brutal reminder of, of the fall, of the effects of, of the curse on this world, and the need of redemption, right? Paul says, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 8, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not just the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And you know what that means, right? Every time you get sick, you know what that means. Every creaking joint is what that means. Every pain, every physical malady is what that means. Our bodies are groaning to be made new, to be fully redeemed. And the whole creation is after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, the ground itself was, was cursed. The earth was cursed. The whole creation was subjected to futility. The whole world has been groaning. Human bodies get sick and they are inexorably subject to disease, to decay, to death eventually. And they're groaning for redemption. And Aeneas felt that desperate groaning even more than you and I do every single day because being paralyzed in the first century in a remote little village off the beaten path, that was hard. It was virtually a death sentence. He's lying here in this bed and he's not going to get out of it. This is where he's going to die. That's what his bed signifies to him. So Peter found Aeneas there in Lydda and he healed him. Which, of course by itself is a wonderful act of compassion and love. But, but see, it's the way that Peter healed Aeneas. And it's the result, it's what happened after the healing that is especially significant for us in the book of Acts. Verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. First notice Peter's humility. Peter's been granted by God 
the ability and the power to heal people from all kinds of diseases and afflictions. And I know my own heart to know that if I'd been given that power and there was a guy who everybody knew had been paralyzed for eight years and I said, hey, get up and make your bed and he did it, I'd kind of want to go, that wasn't bad, was it? (laughs) Yeah, all glory be to Christ, but pretty good, right? Not Peter. Not Peter. None of it was about him. From the get-go, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Not me. Not Aeneas, I'm going to heal you. Jesus Christ heals you. I mean, it would have technically been true if he said, Aeneas, I can heal you. But Peter didn't want any of the credit. There's no grandstanding at all here. There's no pride here. There's no self-promotion here. There's no subtly trying to impress anyone here with anything that's got to do with Peter. It's Jesus Christ who heals you. It's His power. It's His will. It's His glory. Peter's just a, a vessel of all of that. And he's more than happy to just frame it up all that way and, and point all the attention to Christ. He's happy even when miraculous things happen through him to give all the credit to Jesus. And there's a lot that we can all learn just from that simple example, right? If there's anything good in us at all, it's all to God's credit. If there's anything good that He does through us, it's all for the sake of God's glory. And the greatest freedom and the greatest joy in life only comes when we're ready to wholesale abandon any need for anything much to be made of us in this world. And to humbly and eagerly seek to make much of Jesus in every area of our lives. We, we think that if somebody could just give us some attaboys and pats on the back, then, then we'd have the encouragement that we need. But you know what? You'll never know greater encouragement and freedom and joy and peace in your life than when you forget all that and give all the glory to Christ. I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, John the Baptist said. I must decrease and he must increase. And then he spent the rest of his life in a prison cell before they chopped off his head. For me, Paul said, to live is Christ. That's what it's all about. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. It's always all about Jesus, who alone is worthy of all glory and honor and power. And the more we realize that, the more we recognize that, then the more true freedom and joy and peace we will realize in our lives. Peter didn't ultimately heal Aeneas. Jesus did. By Peter's own testimony, Peter didn't have much of anything to do with it. Jesus heals you. Aeneas, rise and make your bed. And immediately, verse 34 said, he rose. His legs worked again. His arms worked again. His back worked again. Even those core muscles that must have been dilapidated for and atrophied for eight years were, were strong enough now that he could sit himself up and get out of the bed. By the power of Jesus, the Son of God, to the glory of Jesus. Jesus. 
the Son of God. And I think at this point, every pastor who's ever preached this passage has made the joke that they wish that Peter could come to their house and command their kids to make their beds because for the life of them, they can't get their kids to do it. Wouldn't it be great if Peter could come and and get your kids to make your beds? Peter commanded Aeneas to make his bed. Why? Because that's what you do when you're done lying in your bed. And Aeneas was done. He might sleep in that bed every night. But Aeneas wouldn't live in that bed anymore. And Aeneas wasn't expecting to die in that bed any day. He'd been freed from his paralysis. He'd been freed to live and not just wait around to die in his bed. God healed him. It's God who heals. It's Jesus, God the Son, who has the divine power to command the world to come into being, to uphold the world, the whole universe, by the word word of his power. It's Jesus who has the, the ability to command the wind and the waves even. To command paralyzed people to get up. Like he did back in John chapter 5 when Jesus walked this earth. And he commanded the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda to, to get up and walk. And he did. And he started jumping all around. It's Jesus who has the power to command the dead to rise unto life. Like he did at Lazarus' tomb. Like he did Jairus' daughter. Like he did here in Acts chapter 9. And when Jesus heals physical afflictions and even death, see, he does it, number one, yes, because he has compassion for, for the people in this world who are suffering. But even more importantly, Jesus does these things through his apostles here even because he has mercy for those who are perishing. When Jesus healed people from physical afflictions, it was in order to demonstrate his compassion to the suffering people in this world, but more importantly, it was to show himself to be the one who can save people out of this world and give them everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what's going on here. See, don't get stuck on Aeneas getting out of bed. I mean, that's a marvelous miracle. The fact that this poor paralyzed man could now walk is wonderful, but what's more wonderful, what's what's absolutely awesome is what verse 35 says. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they all turned to the Lord. All of them. There's the real miracle. Everyone in that village, in the adjacent village, everyone in the entire area saw Aeneas walking around, a man they'd all known to have been paralyzed for the past eight years. He's probably not just walking around, he's probably running and jumping all over the place. And see, the people of Lydda and Sharon didn't fixate on Aeneas, though. They didn't fixate on Peter. Wow, he's, this guy raised him from... No, they turned to the source. They turned to the Lord. All of the residents, it says, turn to the Lord. It means their hearts turn to Jesus. Their lives turn to following and trusting Jesus. And that is the great miracle of this passage. The population of two whole villages became Christians that day. Became citizens of the eternal kingdom of heaven that day. 
became forever delivered from the wrath of God that is to come that day. That's the miracle. Then in verse 36, Luke tells us that while Peter was there in Lydda healing Aeneas, in a nearby town over on the coast called Joppa, tragedy struck. Now, Joppa is a place that Philip would have passed through back in chapter 8 on his way up to Caesarea to preach the gospel. So they'd already heard the message in Joppa, and many had already believed because there's a church already established in Joppa. And in that church, there was this godly Christian woman who everyone knew and who everyone absolutely adored. And her name was Tabitha. It's an Aramaic name. And then Luke translates it into its Greek equivalent here because he wrote the book of Acts in Greek. And most of the people who would read it read Greek. And to our ears, some of you giggled when Stan read the passage. To our ears, Tabitha's Greek name sounds like a little bit of a bummer of a name, doesn't it? Right? Not many American parents would want to name their sweet little daughters Dorcas. But in Greek, that name means gazelle. That's what it means. And Tabitha means the same thing in Aramaic. And when you think of a gazelle, you're thinking of a very beautiful and graceful animal. And the point here, Luke is saying that Tabitha lived up to her name. She was full of grace. She was full of good works. She was full of love. She was full of charity. She was the kind of woman who spent more time blessing other people than worrying about herself. She was a servant, especially to the widows of the church there in Joppa. She made clothes for all of them. She made garments for all of them. She helped them. She poured herself out for them. She was the kind of lady that everybody loved because she was always loving everybody. We've had a lot of Tabithas in this church, haven't we? We still do. Well, in God's providence, this beloved, gracious lady who was a servant to the church, who ministered love and kindness in the church, she got sick and she, she died. And when that happens, we always wonder, why, why did God have to take her from us? We needed her here. Well, here, there's a point here. There's a reason here. It's again to put the glory of Jesus Christ on display. Now, when someone died in, in that time and in that place, it was customary to do a few things. After you knew for sure that they were dead, you would wash the body to signify a ceremonial kind of a cleansing. And then after you washed the body, you would carry the body outside of the house because you don't want to defile the house. And then you would anoint the body with oil and wrap it in preparation for burial. And you would do that relatively quickly. Those are the things you would do immediately. But here, verse 36 says that they washed Tabitha's body, but they didn't anoint it. They didn't wrap it. And they didn't take it outside. They took her upstairs to the upper room of the house and they laid her there on a bed in that room. 
and, and here's why. Joppa is about 12 miles from Lydda where Peter was healing Aeneas. And when Tabitha died in Joppa, the Christians had heard that Peter was nearby. An apostle is nearby. Somebody who has the power to do miraculous things is nearby. And so they sent two men to run to Lydda and urgently summon Peter to come because they believed in the power of Christ that was in Peter. Now, that's a pretty good hike to get from Lydda to Joppa, 12 miles. That's, that's, that's going to at least take someone three or four hours or more by foot. But when they got there, it says Peter came without hesitation. Because Jesus had commanded him to do things like this, right? He had commanded his disciples back when he was with them on the earth to, to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cleanse lepers and to cast out demons, Matthew chapter 10. And so in obedience to Jesus and, and full of the love and the compassion of Jesus and full of the divine power of Jesus, Peter headed to Joppa. And when he got there, they took him to the upper room where they'd laid Tabitha's body. And Luke paints the tragic kind of scene for us there in verse 39, and we can, we can feel the weight of it. The little upper room of that house was filled with people from the church. They're just packed in there. All of the widows that Tabitha had served, that she had loved, that she had devoted herself to caring for and blessing, they were all weeping over her and they're all holding up these tunics and these, these garments that she had made for them and woven for them. Look at, look, look at the things that she did for us. All of the evidences of her love and her service and kindness towards others. And then in verse 40, Peter puts them all outside. You need to leave the room. It's interesting, right? He knows what he's about to do. And again, it might be tempting for someone to want everybody to stay in the room and watch and see him do it. See him raise Tabitha from the dead. But see, again, Peter doesn't have that inkling in his heart to try to impress anyone with him. To do this miracle in front of them and risk all of those grieving people starting to sing his praises and hug on him and kiss on him and get distracted from the real point. Giving all glory to God. Giving all glory to Christ. So he showed them all out of the room. He knelt down on his knees and he prayed to God. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now, many, many weeks before this, Peter had been in the room with Jesus when Jairus' daughter had died, and then Jesus came and raised her with these words. Jesus said, little girl, arise, and Jairus' daughter arose. And in Greek, the word for little girl is the word talitha. There's, really, there's only one letter of difference between Talitha and Tabitha. And you've got to believe that the, the words of Jesus from rising, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead were, were locked into Peter's brain and he just wanted to say almost the same exact thing that Jesus had said back then. He wanted to say, now, just like his Lord, in obedience to his Lord, in the power of his Lord, he says, Tabitha, arise. 
almost identical to what Jesus had said. You got to think that as awestruck as Peter must have been when Jairus' daughter obeyed the sovereign voice of Jesus and rose from the dead, stood up, got up after she died, that Peter was no less full of awe right here, right now, when Jesus did the same thing and caused Tabitha to come to life again and to sit up in her bed. Peter's heart is full of the glory. Christ. It's always all about Jesus. As soon as Peter uttered the words, Tabitha opened her eyes and she looked over and she saw Peter and she sat up in her bed. And then Peter, it says in verse 41, gave her his hand and raised, raised her up. He reached out and he touched her, and that's significant because in the Old Testament, according to God's law, the people of God were forbidden to, to, to touch a dead body since it would render them ceremonially unclean. And here, see, Peter knows she's been cleansed. She's been not just healed. She's been made completely whole. She's not unclean. She is truly risen. She is truly whole. And then Peter called everybody to come back into the room. He presented Tabitha to them alive. Imagine how that must have felt to them. They knew she died. They didn't just think she was sick or passed out or something. They'd washed her body already. Just a few hours earlier, they'd carried her cold and and lifeless up to that upper room. But here she is now standing before them alive once again. And once again, Luke is careful to point us to the main point. Verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The miracle didn't happen in isolation. The miracle wasn't just an end for itself. The miracle didn't happen so that Peter could become famous, so that Peter could become celebrated. That's why he dismissed everybody from the room before he prayed to God. And see, ultimately, the miracle didn't even happen, first and foremost, for Tabitha's sake. Ultimately, she was raised by Jesus so that many might believe in Jesus. So that many might see his power over death itself and then say, what do I have to... What do I have to fear in this world if Jesus has the power over death itself? What more would I want to put my hope in? What more would I want to anchor my trust and my confidence to than the one who has power over death itself? See? And so that's why Tabitha was raised, so that many would see Jesus and put their whole trust in Him and be raised to newness of life in Him. And so these two miracles, Luke only spends a handful of verses relating these things to us, but but they are packed full of hugely significant truth about Jesus, and that truth ought to have a big impact on our lives, just like it had on the lives of all of the people in Lydda and many, many people in Joppa. It should have a big impact on our ability to trust the one who loved us. And gave himself up for us. Jesus Christ 
is the sovereign God who has divine power over disease, over death itself. He's the one who who himself was raised from the dead. He's the one who raised Lazarus. He's the one who raised Jairus' daughter. He's the one who raised Tabitha. He's the one who guarantees to all who believe in Him an even greater resurrection than those that is to come. When in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Here's the thing about Lazarus and Jairus' daughter and Tabitha, they were raised from the dead, but they died again. They're not still here on this earth. There's a greater resurrection that is to come. When all who die in Christ will be raised bodily and changed and made immortal and imperishable so that we can inherit the eternal kingdom of heaven because perishable cannot inherit that which is imperishable. And so we must be made imperishable. And Jesus is the one who does that and guarantees that. He is the one who guarantees all of that to anyone and to everyone who trusts Him in this fallen world that is groaning and that is is decaying and that is full of corruption. Don't put your hope here. Don't anchor your confidence and your trust to anything here. Because Jesus Christ is the one in whom all of the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And so He guarantees you, if you trust Him, an eternal resurrection, an eternal life. Jesus is the incarnation of the great I Am. Jesus is the invisible God made visible in human flesh. And that's how He can do the things that He does. Colossians chapter 1 says, By Him all things were created out of nothing. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Him, and all things were created for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's who He is. That's why He can heal Aeneas. That's why He can raise Tabitha. That's why you can trust Him. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And see, those are not just philosophical, academic, theological propositions about the divine nature and power and authority of Jesus. These are awesome truths and realities that ought to blow our minds that this is who Jesus is, that this is what Jesus does. That ought to forge within us, by the work of the Holy Spirit, this deep abiding trust in Jesus. No matter what's going on in the world. No matter what's going on in our lives. And the reality is that this is how it works with human minds and human hearts. Human minds and human hearts will be captivated by, will be compelled by, will be influenced by whatever they are focused on the most. It's as simple as that. When you're focused on the troubles of this world the most, you will be full of fear and anxiety 
and all kinds of other things. But if you are focused on Christ, his perfect love will cast out your fear. When Peter was in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and the boat was in the middle of a raging storm, and it was being beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. Peter's focus was on the storm, on the waves, on the wind, and he was afraid. And then he saw someone out there through the the wind and the rain. Someone was out there in the water, walking on the water. And at first, Peter thought it was a ghost. And he was terrified until the person spoke and it was Jesus's voice and Jesus said take heart it's me don't be afraid and then all of a sudden Peter's fear vanished because his awareness of the wind and the waves and the storm and the danger and the scary stuff Vanished because he was all consumed with Jesus who was walking on the water. Jesus who said, it's me, Peter. I'm with you. I'm here with you. Don't be afraid. His Lord, his Master, his God was was there, was in the storm, walking on the waters with him. What did Peter say? I want to come out there with you. I want to get closer to you. And Jesus said, well, come on. And Peter, with all the wind blowing, with all the waves crashing, with Jesus in front of him, Peter got out of the boat and stood on the waves and walked on the water. And then Peter went, I'm walking on water. Uh Uh-oh. And he took his eyes off of Jesus. And his focus once again became the wind and the waves instead of the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so Peter sank and became afraid again. But at least he knew to cry out to Jesus for help. And so Jesus reached down and took hold of Peter and lifted him up above the waves and they got into the boat together and the winds ceased because Jesus commands them. So what are the winds that are howling? What are the waves that are crashing against the little boat that is your life? Are they scary? Do they make you stay up at night and feel anxious? Are they fearful? Are they bigger? Are they stronger than the one through whom and for whom all things were created? They're not bigger and they're not stronger, whatever they are. But if you focus more on them than on Him, if your mind is more consumed with the trials and the troubles, if your heart is more captivated by the dangers and the sorrows, then you'll be afraid. And you'll start to sink. And in this world, there are lots and lots of things that can make us afraid, that can make us fear, that can make us anxious, that can terrify us. 
these past 14 months has, has put that reality on open display, hasn't it? I mean, what a fearful society we live in the midst of. And how easily fear can be used against us, right? How vulnerable people in this society are to fear-mongering when it's used in order to try to maintain control. How easily we become susceptible to fear if the things that we care about the most are the things that can be shaken and can be destroyed so easily in this world. How easily we are susceptible to fear if we store up our treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy, where thieves will break in and steal and kill. But what do we really have to fear if Jesus is our vision? If He's the focus of our hearts and our minds in the storm, if our treasures are stored up in Him and in His eternal and unshakable kingdom, what do we have to fear? He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the one who is sovereign over all of it. He's the one who holds the keys of death and Hades in His sovereign, omnipotent hand. He's the one who conquered death. Death has no hold on Him. Death has to answer to Him. And so in Him, death has no sting for you. Are you afraid of sickness? Are you afraid of of disease? Are you afraid of suffering? Are you afraid of dying? Then fill your mind, fill your heart with the truth that the Maker of heaven and earth, the Sustainer of the universe, the Lord of life, the Lord of death is with you never leaves you, never forsakes you, is with you in any and every storm of your life. And He has loved you to the uttermost. He has given Himself up for you. He has given you everlasting life. He has given you an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of heaven forever. He has guaranteed you an even greater resurrection than the resurrection of Tabitha. Because there is, more sure than the sun rises in the east, there is coming a day when the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And when He does, the dead in Christ will be raised. And even those who are still alive when Jesus comes, who are in Christ will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and in that way we will always be with the Lord. Make that your focus. Make that your hope. And when everything is rattling and shaking, you can get excited and go, maybe this is it. Maybe it's about to all be over and we're going to get caught up with Jesus and be with Him forever. If Jesus commands life and death and resurrection from the dead, if Jesus upholds the whole universe just by the word of His power, if Jesus is coming, if we will always be with Jesus in everlasting glory, then what is there to fear in this world? If Jesus is everything, if it's always all about Jesus, and if our souls can truly say, 
It's well with my soul when trials and sea billows roll. If our souls can truly say, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. All glory be to Christ. That's when and only then we will truly know freedom and peace and joy and life in this world. Robert Murray McShane said, they are the happiest who are living only for Christ. They are the happiest who are living only for eternity, who have no object in this world which might divert their hearts from Christ. Are there things in this world that divert your hearts from Christ? Put them in their place. And put Christ in the forefront of your vision. See, this is why it's been so critically important these past 14 months for us to not follow the advice and the command of the unbelieving world which says you must stop gathering to worship your God and to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because when people do that, when they stop, when they stay home obsessing over the news, over the state of the pandemic, over the death count, then those waves are tossing them all around and they become terrifying. But see, get out of the boat Walk right into the waves. Come to Jesus. Gather together with His people. Hear the power of His Word. Draw near to His throne of grace. Pray to Him. Praise Him for the awesome God who He is. Fill your mind with His greatness. Consume your soul with His glory. Raise the roof by singing His praises. And His awesome power and His perfect love will cast out all fear. And this is why, despite what we've been told, despite what so many churches have capitulated to, this is why, by an infinite measure, the most essential activity during a pandemic is worship. And in every other time, and in every other situation, the most essential activity is to go to church. Are you having a hard time in your life? Go to church! One Monday, Spencer, I don't even know, something happened and he was really bummed out and he was sad. And we said, well, what do you need, bud? And he said, I need it to be Sunday again. I need to go to church again. Oh, because that's what lifts his spirits. I love that. I owe you a dollar now. That's what we need though, right? We need to gather. We need to be together as God's people. We need to draw near to the throne of grace. We need to join our hearts and our minds and fix our eyes on Jesus and lift our voices to Jesus and sing praises to Jesus so that He might cast out our fear and fill us with His power and His love. And when our hearts and minds are regularly and thoroughly consumed with the glory of Christ, who created all things, who sustains all things, who can command diseases. If Jesus wants the coronavirus to vanish, he'll stop upholding it by the word of his power. He'll just just tell it to go away and it will. If he doesn't, he wants it here. And he wants you to worship him and trust him. Jesus can command death to yield to life. And if our hearts are consumed with him, then fear will yield to his power and his love within us. 
This is why in 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is why Paul urged Timothy to fan into flame the gift that God had put within him. That's what he says. God gave you a gift, Timothy, and you, it's like an ember in you, and you need to get the bellows and fan it into a raging fire in you. And the gift that he's talking about is the gift of new life. It's the gift of faith in the Almighty God. It's, it's the gift of God's living active Word in Timothy. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in Timothy. Fan all of that into flame, Paul said to Timothy. Stoke the fire of faith in God that is inside of you. Here's why. Because even though there is so much that can cause our hearts to fear in this world, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of of power and love and self-control. Fan it into flame and you will not know fear. God didn't give us a spirit of fear so that we'd be trembling and cowering and weak in this world. He gave us a spirit of power and love and self-control so that we can stand firm and trust Him. And if we fan the gift of faith into a raging fire in our hearts, then that spirit of power and love and self-control will dominate our hearts and define our lives for the great glory of God. And that's what Peter was doing. And that's what God was doing through him. To live is Christ. To die is gain for all who are in Christ. Because to be absent from the body is to be present and at home with the Lord. And there is coming that glorious day when that trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend and our bodies will be raised and together we will always be forever with the Lord. So what is there to fear? if our minds and our hearts are consumed with His glory. Matthew Henry says, the Christian life is derived from Christ and it is wholly directed to Christ. He is the principle of life. He is the rule of life. He is the goal of life. It's always all about Jesus. And all those for whom to live is Christ, to them to die will be gain. It will be great gain. It is a present gain. And it will be an everlasting gain. He says death is only a great loss to carnal, worldly people without God. For those people in death lose all their comforts and all their hopes. But for the Christian, death is gain. For it is the end of all his weakness and all his misery. And it is the perfection of all his comfort and the fulfillment of all of his soul's deepest hopes. And it delivers him from all of the evils of this life and brings him to the possession of the chief good, the everlasting presence of the glory of Christ. So Christians, fan into flame the faith that God has given you. Fan it into a raging fire and let the great glory of Christ be the consuming focus of your mind and heart. And that means drink deeply, regularly from the living waters of God's Word. Draw near to His throne of grace in unceasing prayer all the time. Do not neglect to gather together in fellowship, in prayer, in worship. Fill your mind. Fill your, fill your mouth, fill your soul with songs that magnify and exalt and give praise to Jesus. 
Don't, don't fear the wind. Don't fear the waves. Don't fear the sicknesses and the diseases. Don't fear death. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your mind on the things that are above where Jesus is. And confidently dwell, abide in the strength of His great power and in the freedom of His great love and for the purpose and for the pleasure of His great glory. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank You for things in this world that make us recognize that this world is not our home and that it is not the source of our hope. We praise You for shaking the things that can be shaken in order to point us to the things that cannot be shaken. And so, Father, we pray this morning, may our lives always be all about Jesus. May His glory be our great pleasure and goal. And Father, would You fill our hearts with faith and help us to fan that faith into flame that we might be filled with the Spirit of power and love and self-control in our lives and made able to please you and honor you and trust you, free of fear and full of freedom, full of joy and full of peace in all that we do. This we pray for the sake of the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Page five. Let's all stand and let's sing it to God as he deserves it to be sung. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Let's sing together.